Hello, welcome to the Bankers 2021 podcast series, Banking in Transition, looking at how the banking industry is adapting to the new normal as the world begins to recover from the global pandemic. Although we're not quite out of the woods yet, the thinking has turned to the future betterment of the industry as a whole. So I'm Joy McKnight, editor of The Banker, and my guest this week is Amir Noriala, who is Chief Strategy Officer at CallSign, which is a company focused on digital identity, authentication, and authorization. Thanks so much for joining me, Amir. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. How has the COVID-19 pandemic created this environment where fraud can really flourish? It's funny. I would describe fraudsters as actually pretty simple, you know, uncomplicated people. They look for the weakest point and they try to hide wherever there's traffic and noise to mask what they're doing. So if you think about COVID-19, what's happened in the world, whether it's a bank or a store, i.e. card fraud for shopping, Mm. that opportunity's dried up. Um, There's nowhere for them to hide. So fraudsters have gone fully online and they've gone online even more than the proportion of actual customers who've gone online. So we're all talking about, you know, people are buying more from shops online and people are doing all their banking online. The percentage of fraud's actually got more it's gone entirely um, online. And then mm. in terms of the weak point, initially people were thinking where they're going to go for mobile apps and that kind of thing. Again, fraudsters are pretty simple people. They've, they've done a survey of what they're seeing out there um, in terms of IT infrastructure. And they've realized that mobile apps are more recent spends generally and are more secure as a result. So web portals, um, which are slightly more neglected, are where they've been attacking. So mm. what you've got is an environment where fraudsters have gone online they're going for bank web portals and they're either trying to do simple things, you know, like um, buying credentials on, on the dark web or, or phishing for them or trying to socially engineer you, that kind of thing. And, and that's where um, banks have been caught slightly unprepared. Well, they've had some fraud online, but not to the extent that they've seen now in terms of the volume, the, 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 the different types of scenarios and, and the sophistication as well. So um, the... That's kind of one thing that's going on. At the same time, you've got banks under pressure because that user experience of the in-branch um, experience that someone walking into a mm. bank would have, that's gone away. So a bank's only shop window now is that online experience. So they are very concerned around having a, a fintech-like experience and making it as smooth as possible, You know, removing any any friction to log in or reducing the number of clicks it takes to do something. And that doesn't necessarily marry up well with reducing fraud. Mm. So they're on the uh, one side of pressure from the fraudsters attacking any weak points. And at the same time, they're under pressure from consumers who are now looking at who's got the best user experience. And then the final thing to throw out there is you've got people stuck at home mm. and, and they're bored. Um, and so they're available on the phone. So fraudsters are using this to target them for social engineering. And that's when good people are genuinely logging in, but being tricked into doing something they shouldn't be doing, like paying the wrong person. So overall, you know, in terms of your question, COVID is actually a, kind of a perfect Petri dish of, of allowing mm. fraud to flourish, but specifically online. Okay. And a lot of people obviously focus on the, the money that's being lost or you know, either uh, being taken out of the system and obviously people being defrauded. But what would you say are the full costs associated with fraud? The headline of fraud is the losses that people mm. always talk about. Um, but if you think of what I just 
said to you in, in terms of the, the previous question and, and you and you bring those two things together there's a far greater intangible cost at risk here which is which is retaining market share mm. which all the incumbent banks have and if the and if the approach to stopping fraud is going to be just to make it harder for everyone um, i you know blanket access to digital services is going to be more difficult then the cost is not going to be actually measured in terms of losses for fraud it's going to be pure bottom line revenue which they're going to lose because mm. people aren't walking into branches and requesting to make payments um, or you know going into branches and requesting new products they want to do it online and so if banks are going to try to combat fraud by making that harder some people are going to go move their their custom to somewhere else so that's a cost banks need to think about and then the other one by the same token is if there is fraud mm. um, beyond Beyond reputational damage, people people don't just want to bank with a bank with a great user experience. They want to bank with a bank that they think is secure, and not going to leave them vulnerable. Mm. So there's a there's a there's a reputational and a financial loss to be considered there as well. So I would say it's extended way beyond the traditional kind of fraud fraud loss liability type measures. Mm. And now it's actually become pivotal to a bank's overall revenue. Okay, um, so let's go take the next step and think about. Um, you know, how can banks really protect themselves and their customers? Um, because I understand there's a lot of new identity authentication tools that are now available. So how would you say that uh, banks should be approaching them? Here in the UK, we're in a, a very well-regulated space and we've also mm. got great industry groups like um, the rebranded UK Finance mm. um, who, who, who issue guidance and advice for everyone in terms of you know, best best uh, practice recommendations. So last October, um, UK Finance updated their, gu their guidance on specifically this topic, so on, on strong customer authentication. Mm. And they recommended that banks start doing what they're calling layering circumstantial evidence. So you don't just take one type of authentication. So the traditional way you and I uh, have grown up logging into our banks would be knowledge-based. So mm. an email or a username, uh, with a password, maybe a membership number, something like that, and then that might have been followed up with a with a one-time password as well, or secret key, you know, words like where mm. the streets you're, you're you're raised on, or what name of your cat. Those are all knowledge. They're, just, they're, they're, they're the same type of factor. They're all knowledge factor. And so, what the UK finance guidance is saying is, you should layer other types of evidence on top, such as location data, such mm. as behavioural biometrics. So you actually look at how people behave online, i.e. how they type, how they move their mouse, how they physically swipe on a screen. Um, and and those are and then even the device. Is the device the same device that was seen that opened an account? And and use that to provide stronger evidence that the user is who they claim to be. Um, and, and that layering approach is basically suggesting move to um, more than one type of factor move to a multi-factor approach so banks have been doing multiple same factor so knowledge factor the, mm. the guidance is saying do multiple different types of factors so bring in um, knowledge add possession which is proof of the, the device is the same device to open the account and proof of inheritance which is the um, proof of behavior that's kind of the guidance in terms of how you do that there's a um, there's lots of technology out there now that's being deployed by by UK banks to do this as well as, as banks around the world. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend call sign 
um, are doing anything different. That's, that's absolutely what we are, are currently mm. um, partnering um, with banks to do. So to give you examples, device fingerprinting is how you do proof of possession. So a bank would layer the technology in at account opening and they would bind the device to the user's profile. And then when the user comes to log in, they'll say, yep, that's the same device that they use to open the account. And then, you know, Joy, when you, when you open an account, you generally get asked to type your email address, maybe mm. twice. Behavioral models now are accurate enough that after writing your email address three times, they recognize the way you type. So they recognize the, the cadence of your typing. So for example, what's called the flight time of your keystrokes, i.e. how quickly you type and the overlap of the keys as you type. Um, how you do special characters. So your email address is, let's say, the and in it. When mm. you do that and, you do you, your right thumb on the sh right shift and right index on and. And what is the overlap of how quickly you do that before you then go to do the dot .com part of your email? That kind of cadence, that kind of model mm. of how you type is incredibly accurate because it's subconscious, it's muscle memory, it's an email address, it's something you type all the time without thinking. And so you can build a machine learning model to, to recognize your typing on that field. So banks will passively behind the scenes bind your device you open the account with. They'll build a behavioral model for how you're typing, a geometric model for how you move your mouse. If you're a mobile user, they'll literally look at your, your swiping on the screen. So when you swipe, how quickly do you swipe? How heavy is your finger when you swipe? What's the mm. size of your finger? You know, they're leveraging those enhanced sensors in mobile phones, like um, gyroscopes, accelerometers, that kind of stuff. Um, and what that means is when you bring in this layered approach, which is the, the kind of the best practice that UK finance is recommending, even if someone has seized your device and they've got your credentials, so they know your login details mm. and they're on the same machine you open the account, the bank can say, hang on a second, this is someone different typing, or this is someone different swiping on the screen. And then they can step you up and do more authentication just to make sure it's really you. And because it's so quick to do that check, it doesn't ruin your user journey. It gives you more comfort. And it also gives the, the bank more comfort as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to ask really, you know, can you use this behavioral authentication a part of adhering to the payment services directive too? Obviously, there is a big part in there yeah. around authentication. Does yeah. this solve some of that problem for the banks? Absolutely, absolutely does. Um, so, so PSD2 is kind of the, the overall directive, which underneath two things that everyone's heard of have come out. Mm. One is open banking. People mm -hmm. think open banking is in, in isolation. Open banking actually is part of PSD2. And the other one is strong customer authentication. Mm. And a, a, the SCA regulation is specifically around um, enhancing and upgrading how banks are doing that. And for... For example, for online transactions, SCA actually says that you should you should include behavior as part of the authentication. So it hasn't said behavior is needed necessarily for logging in, but they've said mm. for payments, obviously anything involving money is going to be high risk. Um, they do want to see um, behavior to be included. So yes, to answer your question directly, um, behavioral biometrics meets the SCA element of PST2 specifically for um, what we call card not present um, transactions. So when you get a bank issued card and you spend it online with a merchant. Okay, excellent. And you touched on it a little bit there, but obviously in the UK, open banking has been in now for three years. We just had the three yeah. year anniversary. Some yeah. people have sort of said that it's maybe not, hasn't ramped up as fast 
as they expected it to. You know, what do you think will be the catalyst for change in open banking? I think people always need to think about open banking in a wider context. Mm. So, so as I said, open banking came about due to PSD2. And if, if people aren't familiar with PSD2, PSD2 was written specifically to transform payments, mm. um, which the regulator felt was a bit of a, a closed shop in terms of how payment rails work. And so they wanted to open up the payment market, make it faster, make it cheaper, make cross-border payments better, and, and effectively just open it up to new entrants. And so as part of opening up payments, uh, open banking was introduced and open banking came up with standards for how banks need to make their data available um, to outside uh, kind of aggregators or fintech apps or whatever you want to call it that, that would that would get access to that data. Mm. Um, and they came up with authorizations for the people who access it. So they came up with concepts like um, uh, AISPs. So mm. those are people who are allowed to actually see the account data and uh, PISPs who, who can actually initiate payments. Um, and that's where you kind of, get to the, the transforming the, the payment landscape. So you, you can actually initiate payments from someone's bank to another bank account and cut out the payment rails entirely. And that's where the, the cheaper and faster transformation element of, of change in, in, in payments come from. So, so what I would say is, um, as you'd hope with any good innovation, there's regulation behind it. And it, I would say PSD2 and open banking was, was uh, the, the catalyst for opening up the market but i think what people are asking is not what's going to open up that's happened it's what's the accelerant mm. to then make it suddenly be this cool thing that we're all expecting to happen and that i think is going to be the opposite i think that's going to be market driven that's going to be commercial so people are going to look at what this regulation has done which is basically if you're an authorized body you can see people's account data and you can initiate payments and they're going to come up with cool use cases that, that actually the re regulation wasn't written for. So as an example, PST2 was written again about transforming payments. But we're seeing some really good use cases coming out, like um, saving insight. Mm. If, you can, if you can see where everyone's transactional data at the account level, you can see what they're spending on. You can compare their cash flow in and out and tell them they could be saving more, put some more money aside, or they haven't got enough savings. You need to have some more rainy day savings. Or you're paying too much on your utility bills. Mm. Because we can see how much everyone else is paying on utility um, who are in the same salary band and the same kind of background you've given us about you. We can switch your utility provider for you. Uh, we're seeing use cases where open banking data is used by lenders to make credit decisions. Um, so, you know, those kind of things. That's not mm. what open banking was written for. Um, open banking, again, was written as part of PST2 to transform payments. So in terms of when are we going to see it, when's it going to speed up, Hmm. It's going to it's going to be commercially driven. It's going to be cut by entrepreneurs um, or banks in house incubation setting up these fintech uh, like apps, these aggregation apps, and then taking that data, coming up with use cases, and depending on how the public likes it and takes it up, that's when that accelerant moment will happen, hmm. um, and we'll see that transformation. So I think the catalyst happened. The catalyst was a regulation that opened all this data up. And the accelerant will be will be market driven. And obviously, open banking is spreading around the world. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of countries have also looked to open banking to increase, let's say, financial inclusion. Yeah. Um, as part of their, uh, you know, UN SDG goals and things like yep. that. Um, but how do you think that digital identity 
yeah. verification can really help drive social mobility. So it's not just the unbanked, but also yeah. the underbanked. But can digital identity verification really help with that? Absolutely. And look, you've picked on two of my favorite topics in the world, mm. digital identity and social mobility. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a huge, huge champion for raising the importance of social mobility in the UK. I'm a trustee for a charity called Making a Leap. Um, mm. It's something I'm very, very passionate about. And I think it's, it's, it's one of those things that will transform the happiness of the nation and, and the success of the country as it, as it looks to, to grow post, post-pandemic. In terms of social mobility, I think, I think digital banking in general poses an incredibly important and inter- interesting question for us all in this country. Um, if, if you think about people who are socially economically disadvantaged, one of the greatest ironies of this fintech movement and digital banking that we're so proud of in the UK is that those people who are disadvantaged socioeconomically get third and marginalized because these are the people who probably don't have a home computer mm. or they don't have a, an internet connection or a stable one. And they, and they certainly won't have a smartphone. So this is why these people have been traditionally reliant on local branches. They haven't got access to all these cool fintech apps run on. Mm. So what happens now post-COVID as well, where they're, they're stuck at home and the branches aren't accessible to them? Yeah, and so that in that scenario, what do people do? Well, they go to a you know, local library if they're open. They borrow someone else's device, you know. And so if you think about UK finance recommendations of the kind of things I just mentioned to you, they, they, they would know the knowledge factor for their account. They're going to fail a location check they're going to fail a device check, but it won't be their device. It'll be a shared device. It'll be a shared location they're going to. So they fail two of the three factors. How do you let someone like that in? You need things like behavioral biometrics because the behavior will stay with them no matter what location, no matter what device they're on. So the way we, we kind of bridge this di- digital divide and ensure this, this industry that we're so proud of in the UK and, and we are genuinely the world leaders in um, doesn't widen the, the socioeconomic gap in the country is by leveraging other elements of technology we have. We're, we're also leaders in digital identity. We're also leaders in authentication. Mm. We marry the two together and ensure that everyone has access to digital identity and therefore digital banking, regardless of their socioeconomic position, regardless of whether they have their own computer, whether, whether they can use the computer in their own house the bank will still be able to recognize them. Their digital identity will still be mm. able to be verified. So sorry, I've gone a little bit deep and passionate there, but mm. it's, as I said at the start, that's, mm. you, you, you've quite randomly picked on two of my most favorite topics with that question. Previously, you were a chief strategy officer at Oak North Bank, where you yeah. focused really on scaling up the business. Um, how difficult do you think it is for fintechs to grow and fundraise during the COVID-19 pandemic? To be blunt, the answer is very difficult. The days of profitability mm. not being a metric, uh, and, and famously, I won't name the bank, there was a European-based digital challenger bank three years ago where the CFO publicly announced that profitability was not a metric they measured. Mm-hmm. Right? Those days are gone. Mm. Um, growth at all costs has gone. Mm. Um, it, it's just not something anyone can stand by. So the focus now is very much on you have to prove market fit for what you're doing and you have to have to be a business that either has revenue generation you know at your core from day one 
or you have a clear and rational plan to monetization. Mm. Um, and that's not necessarily been the landscape that fintechs are being uh, started in previously. And therefore, it's not the funding landscape they're necessarily expecting. So the answer is it has become very difficult. At Corsine, we're very fortunate. COVID is, if anything, it's proven what we've been telling the market, what we've been telling banks and merchants, what we've been telling research houses for quite a few years now, pre-COVID, which is you need a clear digital identity strategy. You need to start things like, you know, we've been talking about passive authentication, multi-factor authentication, layering, or, you know, cross-channel, web, mobile, open banking strategy. You need to have all of those things. Mm. Previously, pre-COVID, you know, and literally just, I joined in January last year, so just before COVID um, kicked in. Obviously, it was discovered, but we hadn't quite realized the mm. impact. When I, when I joined, part of my job was to go to the market and raise awareness of this topic. Mm. And um, I'd be talking to CIOs, COOs, CDO, digital officers, whatever, in banks. And they'd be saying to me, we agree with you. Everything you're saying is, is eminently sensible, but we're not sure it's a priority this year. And now they're calling me up proactively um, and saying, this is my top priority. What do I need to do to get this in? Because of what we discussed at the start of this discussion around there is no shop window physically. Yeah. It's all about the, 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 the digital window and they need the best experience and they need to push back on fraud. So uh, to answer your question, very, very difficult. Um, and I know, of course, I'm, we're, we're rare and fortunate that our founders were yeah. present enough to build a product um, which, which had market fit and not necessarily everyone else has done that. Interesting. Uh, and my last question um, mm -hmm. is, I want your opinion in terms of yeah. whether you think that there's a new battle emerging between big fintech, or you might say tech yeah. fin, um, and then the neo tech fins that are coming up now in terms of the platforms. I think we've been hearing variants of this discussion since the, the financial um, crisis. Mm. So, yeah, what is that? Thirteen years? I mean, that forty. I think right. we've been hearing this this happening now. Um, <clears throat> I, I might give a slightly contrarian view on this. Uh, I think the reality of it is that, and I, and I don't mean this in a bad way or a good way. I just think the reality of it is, banks are not going anywhere. Um, mm. Fundamentally, banks are there to keep your money safe and secure, mm. and I don't think anyone thinks the banks are bad at that. Um, the, the one thing I think no one even has a second thought on is whether the bank's going to lose their money that they've put into that mm. bank account. Um, and if you compare that to big tech, um, you know, I don't think people necessarily trust them to mm. secure their photos, let alone their money, mm. you know, their privacy, let alone their money. So do I think banks are going to go away? No. Mm. Um, also in that mix, you've got the fact that banking is a very regulated market. Um, and as, as we've seen, big tech is not necessarily fond of heavily regulated markets. So I think what we are going to see is what you've termed tech fin, mm. where uh, tech companies are going to leverage what banks have already built in terms of infrastructure. Um, and so you're going to see finance being embedded in tech. Mm. A good example of that, this is you know the, the Apple credit card. That Apple mm. card is basically a MasterCard and, and Goldman Sachs white labels, right? Mm. It's, it's, it's not really... Apple, other than the user experience and the slickness and design they've put around it. Um, so I think what we're going to see is that not being a trend, that just becoming reality where people will just continuously embed financial services, some of it from, from the incumbent banks, some of it from established stable fintechs mm. into what they're doing. I think 
you're going to see a lot of this being pushed in adjacent industries to start with. You know, um, if you look at accounting, that is that is ripe for for tech fin. Mm. So you've got an accounting package, let's say, um, you know, a Sage, a, a Zero, if you're an American, like a QuickBooks, mm. something like that, mm. and that's got all of your accounting information and you, and it's seeing who you're paying, whatever else. Why can't those accounting packages embed finance in there and actually have you pay? Um, your suppliers directly from your accounting platform without having going into your bank mm. and and issuing the payment. Why can't why can't they look at your cash flow in and out and actually open an account for you and, and put it into a savings account for you? So you actually start earning interest, right? You know things like that. There's lots of things that adjacent industries can very quickly embed um, with, with with tech fin. So I think I think that's going to become very very normalised. And then there'll be a battle between who's offering those services, who who offers those those fin those finance features that tech companies embed within their platforms. Is, is it the incumbents or is it fintechs that come out nowhere and specialize just in embedded mm. finance within tech? I think this will play out over the next little while for sure. I talked to a lot of banks and mm-hmm. I remember a couple of years ago one of them saying to me, We still haven't quite decided whether we're going to be the platform. Yep. and embed other services within our platform or whether we're going to just you know, be on other people's platforms and be a part of that and provide the financial services. They were very much monitoring the challenger banks and seeing, mm. and seeing these massive valuations, which instantly made them think, right, we need to do that. Mm. And they've seen the struggle for profitability and the valuations dipping, mm. and they're kind of withdrawing from that again. Mm. So, so there's been, a, there's been a, kind of an observation period and I think there's been a few change of opinions as well over the last few years of what mm. the banks think they should do. And I think they're probably feeling more comfortable now than they have done in quite a while mm. as they're seeing um, COVID affect the profitability and fundraising capability of some of the famous fintechs out there. Well, thank you so much for your insights, Samir. No, no, my absolute pleasure. Keep up to date by subscribing to our weekly podcast on iTunes, Spotify and Acast and follow our discussions at thebanker.com slash podcast. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Brien, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.